Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It's my privilege today to be talking to Joyce Carol Oates. I don't really need to tell you who Joyce Carol Oates is, do I? I mean, we don't have that kind of relationship where I need to tell you that. But yes, she's received the National Medal of the Humanities, the National Book Critics Lifetime Achievement Award, the National Book Award, uh, the Penn Malamud Award for Excellence in Short Fiction. She's got six or seven Oscars. Uh, just the awards would take all day. And, of course, the many, many works of fiction and essays and poetry uh, would take all day to talk about, too. And the main thing we're going to talk about today anyway is a new book, a memoir, The Lost Landscape, A Writer's Coming of Age, in which Joyce Carol Oates, after all this time, tells us a lot more than she ever has before about the world that shaped her, the literal landscape that shaped her and the people, the family members uh, and the neighbors and the friends and the teacher uh, who shaped her. So she's with us today. First of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. So fiction writers often have an uncomfortable relationship with memoir, with autobiography, simply because I think for some fiction writers, it's a little bit like pulling the wizard's curtain back in Oz and showing kind of who's been there all along. Did you have any anxiety about that, about revealing yourself this way? No, not really. I was focusing so much on my my background, my childhood, my parents, my grandparents, and that largely vanished world of rural America. I wasn't really writing that much about my own personality. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you about that, having read the book. But, but I think there's also this sense, I've encountered it with other novelists, that one of the things that a truly creative person worries about sometimes, and I think in your case it's less of a worry because you've written so many stories that they can't all be, to use your phrase, thinly disguised versions of your life. But I think, you know, some some novelists worry, oh, if they know too much about my life, they're going to think, oh, she just wrote down her own story and changed some names. This, you know, this wasn't an imaginative act. Was there any anxiety for you about that? No, not at all. But it's such a naive idea to think that you can, quote, just write down your story. It's extremely difficult. Look at Marcel Proust, for instance. Some of the greatest novelists of all times, like James Joyce, have, quote, written down their own story. But they're works of great art. Not just anybody can do that. Oh, absolutely. But I can tell you, I mean, you and I did this thing on stage with Jennifer Weiner and um, Kurt Vonnegut. But I did a similar one with uh, Jonathan Franson and John Irving and Azar Nafisi. And, you know, something, some things about John Irving's life had been published that, that did closely resemble some of his fiction. And he was very touchy about the question of whether or not how much that had informed his fiction. He didn't want people thinking that it was thinly disguised reality, that it was anything other than an act of pure invention. Well, I really don't understand that at all. It doesn't really make any difference. I mean, there are great writers like Faulkner who have created worlds that seem independent of their lives. And there are other great writers like, like Hemingway who drew upon his own life 
It's not really a matter at all of where the origin is. It's what one does with the material. So why did why did you want to tell us about this lost landscape? Why did you want to tell us stories from your past? Well, the book is basically a series of essays, memoirist essays written over a period of a couple of decades. So it's not exactly I sat down to write a book. I assembled these pieces very lovingly. I had a growing manuscript of personal essays I had written on different subjects at different invitations. The New York Times Magazine had asked me on two occasions to write about my parents, for instance. So I wrote very, very detailed, sort of loving tributes to my parents, you know, published many years ago. I wrote something for a ladies' home companion, I think, something for maybe for people. I mean, very, very different publications. And, and, that, and for, that experience can change the conversation a bit. I know you did one thing was for, oh, the Oprah Winfrey magazine, that's right. where you interviewed yes. your, your mother. You were signed, you were asked if you would interview your mother. But, it's, yes, but it's, yes. I'm guessing, well, I'm not guessing, it's pretty much there in the book, that that conversation is a very different one from the, the casual ones that one would have with one's parents. I mean, you, you found out, out other things, right? Yes, it was really extraordinary. If I hadn't had that assignment, so to speak, from Oprah, I would never have written, I would have never discovered certain things about my mother's life. My mother is quite elderly at the time, and she just started talking about something that happened like 75 years before. She started talking very freely and openly, perhaps because we were talking on the telephone, and my father wasn't in the room. She was just talking to me. Usually I would see my mother and my father together. Maybe my brother might be there. But, you know, many of the many of the experiences we have of our family members are in a family context. It's very rare that we get to talk to one individual in a frank and open way. So that just suddenly started happening. I had called my mother, and we had this conversation, or she mostly just talked, and she started crying and telling me things that had happened, as I said, 75 years ago. And I suddenly realized that the woman I saw as my mother and completely took for granted, as most people do over their their parents, had this completely independent life before before I was born, that she had suffered a great deal, but she'd actually transcended that and became a really wonderful mother. She had been given away, given away by her mother, and that was a source of great shame and pain for her that she was given away. Well, we should say she was given away by her mother because it was her father who was murdered, right? Her father had been murdered in a tavern fight. Well, this was a long time ago in 1912 in the Black Rock section of Buffalo. I mean, this is not something that happened recently, a long, long time ago. And in those days, I don't think babies were really adopted. I think babies were quite often just given away because the families couldn't afford them. My mother's mother had nine children and no husband anymore. But her older children, I think, were helping out. They lived on a farm. So my mother was given away. But she was so ashamed and embarrassed of that. So many decades later, it was very, very touching. So I did write about that with her permission. I thought it was so, so touching. And then her her attempt then to be the most wonderful mother that could be, 
which she was, because her own mother had been so so mean to her. Well, it's also it's an interesting story, also in the sense that the relationship she formed with the the couple that she was quote unquote given away to. I mean, when you were born and growing up, if I understand this correctly, your family, your mother and your father and you, were living in part of the farmhouse of that family, right? It was. Yes, we lived in a farmhouse. It's very, really quite common in those days that families lived together, parents, grandparents, children. The idea of just two people or two or three people living in a house was probably quite rare in those days. So one of the one of the things that makes this an unusual memoir, if that's the right word, is uh, and we're talking about the lost landscape, a writer's coming of age by Joyce Carol Oates. Not many memoirs begin, or at least have early on, a section written entirely from the point of view of a chicken. So why why did you do that? You you wrote an entire chapter of this, or it's a freestanding. My pet chicken, happy chicken, happy chicken. Yeah. Well, I I wanted to write about that time in my life when I was four or five years old. I couldn't possibly write it from the point of view of the child who knew so little of what was going on. I didn't want I didn't want to write it from the perspective of an adult looking back because that's in a way not very not very dramatic. So I I wrote it from the point of view of my pet chicken. Of course the chicken has quite an ironic droll eye and the chicken can look forward decades. And the chicken makes some comments on things that a, that a little girl wouldn't be capable of. So that was just a, an experiment, maybe in, in voice and perspective. I'm basically a postmodernist writer, and most of my writing is experimental in some way. Sometimes I have an experimental novel that's virtually identical with a traditional novel, but it's not really a traditional novel because it's it's some sort of experiment that I'm working with language. But this is not really an issue for the reader. It's more something that I'm, that I'm aware of. But there really was a chicken named Happy Chicken. You had a pet chicken. Oh, yes. Happy Chicken was my pet chicken. And the strange thing was that we all just assumed, or I, was, I assumed, that the chicken was a little boy or a male. But obviously the chicken had to be a hen because the chicken was not a rooster. So that was strange. The many unexamined oddities in, in our lives. Right. And this book is full of unexamined oddities, some of the more profound and unsettling than the sex of a chicken. Although I think another thing that happens in that piece is you're, one becomes aware of the lack of uniform understanding of the world in any family. So this chicken is very, very important to you as a little girl. It's really one of the, the centers of, of your life. You know, is it really, it's the pet that you're very close to. But not everybody in the family sees it that way. In fact, when the chicken kind of disappears, presumably becoming food at some point, it seems as though there are other family members, maybe including your grandmother, who just wouldn't, it wouldn't even occur to them that this chicken was any more important than any other chicken. Oh, absolutely. And a farm, farmers are not sentimental. And I had a pet chicken. I also had pet, I had many cats, which I don't really write about too much in the memoir. But if you're a farmer and you're you're working really, really hard and you're raising chickens and pigs and so forth, you're not sentimental about these animals. They ba- Basically, they're the material of your life. It's people who come to visit farms or people who are writing romantic poetry like Wordsworth about the rural life who see things differently. I don't know what happened to the chicken. I really don't know whether the chicken just 
died or was slaughtered. You see, many chickens are brooders. They're, they lay eggs. They're layers. They lay eggs, so they're not necessarily killed. They may be killed after a while, but those are things I didn't know about and didn't want to know. A kind of amnesia came over me. I basically never really knew certain things. Well, yes, and the the book is very much about a lot of those things that you don't know. And before we talk about that, though, I think the other thing that the book is about is how we construct memory, right? I mean, nobody has a perfect indelible memory. So much of memory is piecing together clues, trying to see the degree to which one's own story conforms with other people's memories or stories of that time. I think you say at one point in the book that you don't really remember yourself as a little girl. So what kind of act is this to try to to write down things, to try to make coherence out of what are very imperfect memories? One kind of evidence that we all have is, is likely to be snapshots and photographs and family album. You go to that and you look you look at these photographs and really stare and, me- and meditate upon them. Memories will come back that are generated by the these visual stimuli. I think our brains are extremely attuned to visual stimuli and to a sense of smell, not so much to auditory because we're primates, and that's a characteristic of primates, to be somewhat weak in terms of the of auditory memory, but quite strong with visual. So if you try to think about your childhood room and look at the walls and shut your eyes and walk around your house, you will actually evoke in your brain these visual memories, and you start seeing things that you haven't seen, you know, in... 40 years. I know it sounds a little it sounds a little mystical, but it actually is I think a neurological phenomenon. So I did a lot of that. I can take myself, I can walk all around our farm, I can walk down the lane, I can walk down the creek, I can walk all around the house inside and outside. I can do that in my mind with my eyes shut and I can almost see these things and as I turn a corner, I see something that I didn't remember what was there. I sort of think that everybody can probably do this. I think that's right. Although I think the other thing that's happening is, well, I mean, there's a a section of the book that deals with what it was like to be a a young girl running around in the woods. I mean, I'm of an age, too, where, uh, you know, we as unsupervised children could run around in the woods and and explore things and and do things. And in a way, uh, not to make everything a metaphor about something else, but it seemed in that segment section of the book as though you're a little bit describing what you're doing mentally, too, right? You're running around in the woods. You're you're uh, overturning rocks and seeing what's underneath them. You're you're jumping off something to see where you land. That the mental exercise of remembering is a little bit like running around in the woods. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, that's very interesting. With well, the point that you were making like thirty seconds ago, extremely interesting because today children and young, even young young people, teenagers, are really very protected by their families, and that may be a good thing. It may seem confining, but nobody today that I know would allow their children to wander around the woods, down by a creek, walking over bridges. We were 
exploring abandoned houses. We were climbing on the roofs of houses. We were jumping off the porch roofs. We were jumping like 12 feet to the ground. We did the most reckless and kind of crazy things because adults didn't know what we were doing. And we bicycled long distances and we had bicycle accidents. Ironically, today, though children and young people are very protected, they have access to the Internet. And that's a kind of wild and lawless and terrifying place where sometimes parents can't follow them. So it's very ironic that they're protected in one sense, but then they're, they're in, the pres- the, in the presence of great threat in another. There's also, I think, for the fiction writer, as I read those descriptions, the ones that you're talking about, and I think of you as a fiction writer, one of the things the fiction writer does, of course, is imagine that it were otherwise. So there's a description, as you just suggested in your book, of you as a young girl jumping off of a 15-foot roof of an abandoned cabin or something, and you're with your friends, and it turns out once your friends watch you do this, all of the rest <laughs> of them decide that they're not going to do it. And Exactly. I remember that. And so you're left with kind of a headache and a feeling of exhilaration. But some of that, that is, well, imagine that it were otherwise because that was a dangerous thing to do. You could have. It was crazy. Yeah, you, know, you could yeah. have crippled yourself. You could have hurt yourself. You yes. could have died. And similarly, I think in that same chapter, there's descriptions of you running along this creek where there would be solitary fishermen and you'd be out in the woods and there'd be nobody else for miles around but you you and a fisherman, and you might say hello, you might not say hello, that fisherman might greet you, um, he might not greet you. Now, none of those fishermen was a, a deadly serial killer or rapist or anything like that, the kinds of things that parents worry about these days. But he might have been, and I wonder if, once again, exploring the past, you're also exploring, well, I mean, but for a stroke of luck, you know, I mean, I could have run into some somebody or something really terrible out in the woods, and maybe that's what fiction is? Well, I think that's true, and who knows who these people were. Most of them came down from Buffalo. They drove out into the country, and they and they, they wandered around, and they were, they were fishing. I don't really know who they were. And my, my mother or grandmother might make some vague remark of, like, stay away from them or don't go down to the creek or something. But nobody paid any attention to to authority. We just basically just drifted off. And my family was always very busy. They were working all the time, and they didn't really have time to be monitoring what we were doing. So as it turned out, things were all right. But when I went to the one-room schoolhouse, I was really quite seriously bullied along with other small children and many and most girls or all girls. I think we were really, really uh, virtually molested. We were chased. We were, we were made to run. We, <laughs> we were harassed. I mean, harassment is a very mild word, actually. But all that was going on, and I, I tried to tell my parents something about that, and they went to speak to the teacher, and she said, oh, the boys like Joyce, so just teasing her. And somehow that was accepted. Now today... That would never happen. What we know of sexual molestation and harassment and and bullying and so forth in a school, the consciousness is raised today. But decades ago, people would look the other way or a teacher would pretend it wasn't happening. The teacher herself was afraid of these boys. They were like six feet tall. So it's not that I feel vehement about it. It's just that it was a different era and it did infuse me with a sense of a reality that I think 
um, maybe has come to bear in my writing. Uh, we're talking to Joyce Carol Oates. The book is The Lost Landscape, a writer's coming of age. We'll take a quick break here, and then we'll be back with more. We're talking to Joyce Carol Oates. I don't need to explain to you who Joyce Carol Oates is at this point. Uh, her new book is The Lost Landscape, A Writer's Coming of Age. It's um, almost kind of a pastiche of different ways of uh, telling stories about her past, about the place that she grew up in, in upstate New York, about the people uh, around her. And it's also, it's about many things. But one of the things that it's about, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, I think, is secrets. The secrets we keep and the secrets that are kept from us. Your family, I, we had very similar families in some ways, particularly as regards this keeping of secrets. Because one of the things that I think emerges for you, and it was true for me too, is it was hard to tell which secrets were being kept and which secrets that nobody just got around to telling you, right? There was, a, you know, sometimes you'd find something out and they'd say, oh, well, we thought you knew that. Yes, that's so true. Well, in those days, people didn't talk openly about much. You've never, families would never really know what, what a fa- say, a father's income was or salary or financial things. Nobody talked about that. I'm not even sure that my mother would know what my father made as a, as a factory worker. It's just um, a different era. People did not speak openly about certain kinds of illnesses. If a woman had cancer, say cancer of the uterus or breast cancer, that was actually, unbelievably, considered shameful. And they didn't want to talk about it. It was like a secret. There were terrible things that were just not spoken about. If a girl had been sexually molested or raped, I'm sure it would have been kept secret. In, in some ways, though, we've extended that. I mean, in some ways, we've changed and we've become this almost compulsively confessional society. But in other ways, we preserve some of that. And I, I think it's a point that you make in the book, too, that in an odd way, we still have this strange attitude towards illness, that illness represents some kind of failing on our part. We failed to stay hale and hearty and well. And, and you say that, I mean, your own experiences with tachycardia while you were in college were things that you were very, very eager to conceal from the world, right? Oh, absolutely. I don't really believe in, in showing one's weakness. <laughs> in the beginning of my novel, The Gravedigger's Daughter, it's made very clear that you that in the animal world, you never show weakness, because if you show weakness, the other animals will destroy you. So basically, that's the th- one of the themes of that novel, It's one of the great themes of nature and one of the great themes of human civilization. But as you say, we're in this strange, compulsively confessional uh, world now that's profoundly unnatural. You're really not supposed to show these, these signs of weakness. And people probably regret it. They probably say things, they blurt things out that maybe they don't even mean exactly. It's like a child saying, I hate you, I wish you were dead. Well, adults should not say things like that because once it's said, it's, it's somewhat irrevocable. 
It's uh, you know that the thing about the animal world it's right there in your book because uh, in, in looking at the life of happy chicken we do hear about the the proverbial chicken with a spot of blood on it the whole idea that a chicken would be pecked first by a rooster and then attacked because of the blood because of the weakness because of the infirmity by the other chickens and happy chicken him or herself may have participated in such activities it's yes it's something like twitter <laughs> i was going to ask you about that well i i was waiting to ask you about that later but since you just said that word i you know I've met you a few times, uh, I think four by my count, uh, but it was quite a while ago. I would not have guessed that you would be somebody who would enjoy Twitter, but you seem to. You do. You enjoy Twitter, don't you? Yes, I do enjoy Twitter, and I follow about 70 Twitter accounts, and they're they're really, really interesting and wonderful and varied people. Um, some, there are some poets. There's a classicist, Daniel Mendelssohn. There's Steve Martin, for instance. I mean, I follow really interesting Todd Gitlin, who teaches at Columbia. The the people whom I follow are all very interesting. Well, Oliver Sacks, the late Oliver Sacks, is someone whom I greatly, greatly admired. And I I retweet all his his tweets and so forth. So it's Twitter is basically what you make of it. You can construct a number of people whom you follow whose tweets you read every day and then you reply to them. Much of what I tweet is is replies to other people. And there's a, a general feeling of um, left liberalism, left-wing political interest, act, activism, uh, Black Lives Matter, and feminism and animal rights, so certain things that I'm that I'm interested in. I, I think you also use it occasionally for a kind of crowdsourcing or wisdom of crowds thing. For example, I think this week you asked, "Is there anything in the New Testament uh, in which Jesus says anything specific yes. about homosexuality?" And my sense was it wasn't a rhetorical question. You really wanted to see that yes. if there was, or make sure that there wasn't. Yes, I thought that I knew the answer, but I really uh, I wasn't absolutely sure. And you do get wonderful responses, sometimes really smart and informed. I mean, there are negative things that one can say about Twitter, but overall it has been a revolutionary uh, wedge in, in consciousness, I think. The idea that one can speak openly as a populist sort of perspective, so that all around the country there are people who are posting tweets and taking pictures and videos and they may be policing their local police department in a way that was unheard of. In the past, we had to depend upon centralized media for news, and the, your local newspaper could just uh, not publish anything it didn't want to, or national media just would not publish certain things. Now, nobody can keep these things under wraps. If there's a lynching somewhere, there will be pictures, there will be stories about it. But in the in the past decades, there were many many lynchings in the United States, and they were they were not covered by the news services. They, there was no publicity about them. People just suffered silently. Uh, we're talking to Joyce Carol Oates right now. Her book is The Lost Landscape: A Writer's Coming of Age. I want to go back to that whole question of physical infirmity and and what our attitude is toward it too. I feel as though there is such a social stigma. Maybe it's just for people of a certain generation. Maybe this new confessional generation doesn't feel that way. I've often wondered if I were 
choking, like really choking uh, in, a, in a public place, in a restaurant, whether I would let somebody give me the Heimlich maneuver in front of everybody else or just go off into a corner and die. You know, there's just there's <laughs> something so public about it. Uh, I, I almost wouldn't want to have to acknowledge that I was in that kind of trouble. But maybe it's a reticence that a uh, kind of reticence that doesn't exist anymore. Well, it may be that in a real emergency situation that your body starts to respond in ways that you your ego uh, can't control. You know, like you don't care about your pride. Basically, you just want to take a deep breath. So you're flailing about and, and somebody will pick up on what's happening. Or if you're drowning, you know, at a certain point, you just want to, to live. And so many people who think they want to commit suicide by drowning, they change their minds when it actually happens. So we're all burdened by our excessive egos and the sense of pride and reticence. But the physical self has a stronger authority and can take over. What do you think, I mean, you, you write about two, two physical problems. One's tachycardia. The other one is insomnia, if we're going to call insomnia a physical problem. And, you know, I think about um, Updike's um, self-consciousness uh, and, and his psoriasis. And, and, yes. and I, I wonder, you know, for every creative person, you sort of wonder whether the thing that's biting at them, the thing that's hurting them in a specific way is also one of the things that's propelling them into realms of imagination. How much do you feel as though, I, I think in particular the insomnia is part of who you are as a creator? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think the tachycardia makes a person very conscious of his or her heartbeat. Now, you're not supposed to be hearing your heart, and you're not supposed to be aware of it. But a person with tachycardia is sort of quasi-aware of it all the time. That may make you want to use time more productively. Like you don't want to waste time because you are more aware of time passing. As far as insomnia is concerned, many, many people are insomniac, and it's what you do with it. If you lie there miserable and get more and more upset, that's the worst thing you can do. I just put the light on and start reading. I may try to write a little bit. I wrote most of a widow's story in the late, hour, early hours in the morning when I couldn't sleep, I couldn't really write either, but I could write in a journal. I could write kind of jaggedly and desperately. It's some, You find what you can do, and after a while, you will probably be able to sleep. And that's that's something that you can have faith in. Even though you may be awake all night, you probably will sleep at some point. Mm-hmm. I want to talk, too, about the degree to which being a writer um can almost come first and foremost for you. There's, um, I can't remember whether it's in the book or in the original version of the essay uh, about your sister, to whatever degree. I can't remember whether I saw it in the book. I know it's in the original essay. Uh, so there's one of the things you write about in the book is your sister who was born with um, a very profound kind of autism. So she's not yes. responsive and not, and, and that you went a long, long period without seeing her. And 
one of the things that jumped out at me the, the first time I read the essay was that one thought that your parents had, I think, was that this might, that she might somehow or other surface in your writing. And it made me think about how people who aren't writers regard writers, that writers have to write everything or are going to somehow or other use everything. I mean, do you think the people around you who aren't writers, who weren't writers, started to look at you that way? Like she's, She writes things. Well, I don't think so. The only thing that, that I used from my life repeatedly was the settings because I really, really love the, the landscape I come from, and I would set stories and novels in that landscape. So my mother would say, oh, Joyce, I recognize you know the old cider mill or down by the creek. She She would never have any reason to think I'd write about her. I never wrote about, and I really haven't written about real people. I mean, maybe once or twice, you know, out of a, out of a thousand times. Um, the actual people I make up, because they embody traits that are usually quite complex, and but they're in settings that are very real. It's like James Joyce wanted to evoke the wonderful, beautiful, exciting city of Dublin on a certain day, and he makes it just absolutely come alive. And Joyce did write about real people, but he makes them so much more articulate than they probably were. Yeah, I, I just earlier today did an interview with the playwright Christopher Shin, and I was asking him whether it's more fun to think about the thoughts of people who are very different uh, from you as opposed to— I was t- asking him to imagine writing um, uh, a play about Kay Davis. Is that her name? The the town clerk from Kentucky who won't issue the marriage license. Oh, Kim. Kim Davis. And so I said, could you imagine her world? Could you? Would it be fun for you, interesting for you to imagine her thoughts? And and you will be unsurprised to hear that that he would be interested in kind of understanding. Oh yes, absolutely. And I, that, would, that somebody will probably write about that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. And so I, I would imagine that for you, that's part of the adventure, right? Is to go into a brain, a mind, a consciousness that's nothing like your own. Well, I guess so. But we're we're like one, and we're much more like one another than we are not. It's like the way we have ninety nine percent of the. Of the material of of primates and apes and chimpanzees, you know, we're very, very, very close ancestors to these creatures who may look differently than we do, but uh, we're much more like one another than than we're not. So pe- people are motivated by the, some of the same things, and basically, Darwinian evolutionary theory would say that. The various religions that seem different spring from the soil of territoriality. So people have a territory, they have blood, kinship, their DNA is related, and they have languages that are specific to this DNA, and they live in a certain place. And the religion that emerges from that may seem radically different from another religion somewhere else, but it springs from the same source. But that that kind of leads you to the kind of mystical and unanswerable question, which is, you know, is Macbeth Macbeth because of who he basically is or the circumstances which shape him and the moment he finds himself in? Would you, Joyce Carol Oates, do the same things that Macbeth does or Lady Macbeth does if you had lived the same life? Or are you fundamentally different at your core from a person like that? Well, this is a question that's actually been answered by genetics. Genetics present us with a certain set of predilections. 
which are stimulated by or perhaps suppressed by an environment. In other words, it's both, what we call nature and nurture. We're all likely to have language. We're all hardwired to have religion. We're, going to do, we're, we're born that way, and we're in an environment that stimulates it. So if you were in an environment where you were put in a closet, you were not spoken to, you didn't have any, no one ever talked to you, you never heard a human voice, you would then be mute. You could make some noises with your mouth. You would not have language. Could you imagine yourself, under other circumstances, being Lady Macbeth? Could you imagine yourself, under other circumstances, doing something really horrible? Well, it wouldn't be me because, as I said, we have genetic predilections. Say you're you're the say you're the the descendant of brilliant musicians. It's very likely that you're going to have a gene for music, but you also have to have an environment that will allow you to flourish. You have to have enough money. Somebody has to care about you so that you have a piano. You can't be working in a salt mine or in a rice paddy. 18 hours a day because you're never, ever going to be able to, to be a musician. So as I say, you're, you're born with a certain set of predilections, but you must be in an environment that allows them to flourish. Did you think about that in writing this book? I mean, your father emerges as this very interesting guy. He's a guy who's a lifelong factory worker and sign painter. But he's also, you know, he loves to fly planes. Um, he's musical. I mean, he's profoundly musical. He played uh, a, um, a piano or an organ in the silent movie theater. So he's maybe a guy who, with a different kind of background, a different kind of education, might have been a university professor or a talk show host or, or, or who knows what, or, a, you know, an engineer somewhere. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's very true. I think my father would have been a teacher. He might have been a high school teacher. He loved to read, and obviously I get the, my love of reading is for, through him, from my grandmother, who is who is Jewish. I had a Jewish grandmother. She was the one who brought the books into the house. She was the one who gave me my first typewriter. It's sort of, sort of the German-Jewish influence. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with a final segment here with Joyce Carol Oates right after this. take a 90-second break so that Ms. Oates can write a short story and a poem. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Salman Rushdie. For show pages, articles, and a list of the novels Ms. Oates wrote under the pen name Faith Middleton Show Staff, visit our website wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose greets the new Stephen Colbert era. And now... Back to Colin. We're talking to Joyce Carol Oates. Her new book is The Lost Landscape, A Writer's Coming of Age. It's a, a melange of stories and different ways of telling a story about uh, the writer's past. I wanted to ask a little bit about, as I was reading this book, it's, it's kind of interesting because everybody who reads this book, or maybe most people who read this book, we're going to be looking for 
the things that forged the writer, the things that created uh, the writer that we know is Joyce Carol Oates. And so some of those things are going to be literary influences and teachers, and, and we do read about those, and we read about the fact that as a very young girl, you tackled pretty tough writers. You, you know, as a very young girl, you were already reading Poe and uh, Emerson and Thoreau and things like that. But I think we're also looking for, we're looking for the kinds of things that you write about. And initially it seems like, we're reading about kind of a childhood that seems, and if not not idyllic and not easy, but you know, kind of a good wholesome American childhood. And we're kind of waiting for, well, where's all the Joyce Carol Oates stuff? Where's some of the stuff that we associate with her fiction? And then we start to get it a little bit. Some of it's in stories from around the neighborhood, and we'll come to that in a second. And some of these, some of it is these buried secrets. It's these things that you didn't know about until you were an adult. Whether it was the murder of your grandfather. There are suicides. I guess in reading that, a lot of people are going to be tempted to say, ah, well, there, like any life, there were kind of dark currents here that probably she tapped into at some point. Do you think that's right? Do you think those things which are upsetting stories, stories of death and loss and suffering, informed you as a writer, maybe in ways you weren't even aware of? Well, I think that's a human condition. There isn't anyone in any family who hasn't experienced some sort of secret that comes to light, some kind of sorrow, some sort of shock and tragedy. Especially in the past, life was actually much rougher. My father could easily have been killed in a fight. He he lived at a time and he was of an economic class in which a man did not ever back down from a fight. Right. There's actually a scene in in, in your book where you... Your family has been on one of these quintessential American Sunday drives, and you've stopped at an inn, and you're walking past to the bathroom or something as a very little girl, and you suddenly see your father face-to-face with a man you don't know, but they have faces of of rage like they're about to fight. They're about to try to harm each other. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. And and it seems even as though your presence there as a little girl might be the reason they don't fight. Well, I don't know about that. I think it was very much a man's world. We we just have to remember this is like the 1950s. It was a man's world in in many, many ways. Men did the driving. Uh, if a woman was in the car with a man, the man always did the, always did the driving. It just would have been not manly for a woman to drive and a man sit in the passenger seat. So my father was basically of that world. He was he was a very good friend of a of a middleweight boxer who lived in Buffalo. And I'm not saying it was a good world. I'm not saying that it wasn't. I mean, I'm not bringing to bear feminist uh, strictures on that world that's basically vanished now. But it was a very different world. Say you walk into any place, you walk into a, a boxing match or a restaurant or a saloon, saloon or a tavern, the first thing you're going to experience that would be shocking is the smoke. Everybody smoked, and the smoke was very thick, and some of the men were smoking cigars. The thought of it makes me feel ill at the moment, but that's the way it was. They were, people smoked like in hospitals. They smoked on airplanes. They smoked all the time. So my father was of that world, and they also drank a lot. They basically drank beer. They drank a lot, and much of the time when my father was... Um, somewhat aggressive. I'm sure he was with other men, and they'd all been drinking. And they flew their airplanes, and, they, and they'd been drinking. As I say, it was a different world, and I'm, I'm not at all judging them. 
Not at all. I think it's just uh, another era, and people behave differently. They weren't thinking about their diets the way people think today. People ate all sorts of completely disgusting things. I have a whole long list of all this fried foods that we all ate. I mean, the, amazing. I was eating these things myself and all kinds of candies. It was quite a bizarre world. I had a, a dentist who smoked while he was performing dentistry on of you. Of course right? you did. <laughs> <laughs> of course you probably would have open heart surgery if it had existed. They'd be smoking. Well, another thing is the doctors didn't necessarily care about clean washing their hands. I mean, they might have done it a little bit. And nurses, all the whole focus now on sanitary conditions and being very clean, that did not exist in those days. People got infections and they died. You mentioned boxing, um, and it, it comes up in, in the book near the end uh, because of your father. Um, and, but everybody knows. I mean, you wrote on boxing. And I actually one time had to give a speech because you had to change the date of your speech at a writer's conference because you were going to it was like the Tyson Sphinx fight or something it was like some <laughs> yeah. some it was some big fight and so I got moved to a different night to, great and, fight and see, see and I think people think that's so incongruous people who have a mental picture of you or think that they know you and I know you've answered this question a million times but can you explain to people why Joyce Carol Oates would care passionately about boxing well, I'm not sure that I care passionately about it. I've, it's so much part of my childhood and girlhood. My father took me to the boxing matches, and I watched boxing matches for years with my father uh, on Wednesday nights and Friday nights, the Gillette fights. My father was um, an ardent student of boxing. He was not necessarily a fan. He was very critical. He was aware of the tie-in with, with crime, with cr criminal organizations. He was just very, very interested in boxing. He got Ring Magazine. I was reading Ring Magazine long before I was reading The New Yorker. So basically, that's the world that I come from, but only because of my father. If, uh, if he hadn't been in the household or had been a different person, I would probably not be interested. As we're winding down here, uh, maybe appropriately, let's talk about age. Um, obviously, one of the reasons that you're writing right now about your past is because you are a woman of a certain age, we might say. So how does that feel these days? How does your age feel on you? Well, that, again, it's hard to answer that. I think that we are what our health is. If you're 40 years old and you're not in good health, you're not going to feel good. It's so it's really more a matter of, the, of one's medical condition because I hear people say, well, I'm 90 years old and I'm still, you know, doing a marathon. And so I know many people in Princeton who are fairly elderly, but they're still teaching. And then there are people I know who are sick all the time and then they're sort of hypochondriac and they could be much younger. So I'm not that aware it's more that I don't seem to have as much time. I don't think I run as much as I used to, but I really love running, and I still do run, and I bicycle. It's probably over a period of time you start doing things less, where once I might run for one hour, probably now I run for half an hour. Or once I would bicycle for two hours, I might bicycle for, for one hour. It feels to me as if I don't have as much time to do these things anymore, but maybe unconsciously I'm just cutting back. It is, I think, for those of us trailing behind you a little bit. I, I turned 60 uh, last year. 
I think we read with great interest how it is. And you're right. It sort of depends so much on, on, how, on how your health is and how you're wearing your body. I think all of us read kind of obsessively Roger Angel's essay last year about what it was like for him to be in his 90s. I mean, it, Oh, I didn't read that. Oh, you've got to go back and read it. It's great. And the other one that I always uh, flash to is, you know the Stanley Kunitz poem that he wrote about it? Uh, desire. It's at, at the end he says, desire, desire, that's what yeah. makes the engine go, which I think he wrote yes. at the age of 90, right? Yes, yes, that's true. So much is beyond our control. You know, like my sister is severely autistic. That's because of the biochemistry of her brain. That's all. So it's the biochemistry. It's whether your bones are strong and what what sort of genes you've inherited for longevity. All these things we can't control. We try to have good diets and good health, and uh, we try to to sleep enough and, and behave, you know, sanely. But ultimately, we don't have all that much control. That's right. It's the it, that's the illusion that we have that we can control, uh, and at some point, it's in some way, we know that's not true. Um, we're at the mercy of fates. The Greeks knew that. Well, Joyce Carol Oates, it's been so great to visit with you and visit with this uh, very interesting book, The Lost Landscape. What's the next thing that's coming out? Because we know with Joyce Carol Oates that the next thing is already done, right? Well, my next novel is about um, a neuroscience subject. I'm married to a neuroscientist now. The next novel is called The Man Without a Shadow, and it's based, sort of loosely based on a number of of cases of severely amnesiac individuals, from mostly from the perspective of a neuroscientist who studies one of them, a woman neuroscientist who eventually falls in love with her subject he's he is worth loving i mean he's not he's he's a very complex person but the idea that he can only remember certain things and he can't remember other things makes his personality somewhat mysterious well i can't wait it sounds fabulous and it's been a great talking to you today thank you so much for sharing your time and your memories thank you 